Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Markets Podcast. I am your host, Krishan Kupchand, and my guest today is Ronak Gopaldas. Um, if I were to describe Ronak's work in one word, it would be risk. Uh, he runs a firm called Signal Risk, which is a pan-African risk advisory. Without further ado, I will allow Ronak to introduce himself and share a bit of his backstory. Cool. Thanks, Krishan. Great to be with you today. Um, looking forward to the, the discussion. Um, so I grew up in South Africa, first generation South African. And um, I guess I grew up at an interesting time. It was kind of the end of apartheid and the transition to the new democratic dispensation. Um, it was a time of great hope and optimism in South Africa. Uh, and I was lucky enough to, to get a really great education. I grew up in a place called Port Elizabeth. Um, and then moved to Johannesburg in 95 um, after things had changed in the country. Um, and as a kid, kind of, I, I remember kind of three things stand out. I, I was always interested in writing. Um, ever since I, I learned how to read and write, I was writing stories. Um, I was also really curious about the world. Um, you know, I would sit with my dad uh, every evening telling him what I read in the newspaper, he used to subscribe to Time magazine, um, and I was just really curious and asked a lot of questions. Um, and then I guess the other thing is I was also someone who always backed the underdog. Um, and I think those are kind of three themes that have kind of played through in my professional career. Um, so, I mean, after that, uh, after school, I, I went to university and I studied a PPE, which uh, is politics, philosophy and economics. My mom called it party party, etc. Um, and kind of then almost uh, accidentally ended up in banking. I wanted to be a journalist, but um, somehow I found myself in banking and I did that for eight years, uh, running a country risk team at uh, Rand Merchant Bank, which is one of the biggest banks in South Africa. For the past five years, I've been down an entrepreneurial path um, with Signal Risk, where I'm working with my two two partners, Nick and Ryan, and we're trying to grow um, this Pan-African business and now kind of dabbling into the academic world and, and doing a lot more teaching. So I'm a big believer that life's about chapters, different places for different phases, and that you need to constantly reinvent yourself. Fantastic. Could you go more deeply into what Signal Risk is? And in particular, one thing that I'm fascinated by is the various research approaches that different participants have when it comes to understanding these frontier markets or mm. emerging markets. Mm. I think there's significant differentiation amongst them. And I'm curious about what your kind of uh, process and philosophy is for understanding risk. Yeah, so I mean, Signal Risk, we're a risk management firm. We focus on research and analysis. We cover all 54 countries across Africa, and our specialization is country risk. So we look at politics, economics, security, and business environments uh, across, across countries uh, on the continent. And what I think makes us unique is that we're an African firm that covers Africa. Um, a lot of our competitors, I guess, are, are international firms or headquartered uh, overseas, um, but we pride ourselves on being being an African firm. And I think the other thing that, that sets us apart is our depth and breadth of coverage. Uh, you know, we're covering jurisdictions that are often overlooked or seem to be too exotic on a, on a daily basis. Um, and then it comes down really to the variety of skill sets that we have in the team. You know, country risk is a really interdisciplinary uh, discipline. It's something that requires a lot of different skill sets and to be able to translate across various worlds, whether they be policy or business or um, or from top down to bottom up. Um, I think, you know, asking the right questions is a, is a really important um, element of, of what we do. And of course, we need to strike the right balance between quantitative and qualitative analysis. Um, and, you know, I would say that that the discipline of country risk is more of an art than a science. Um, but, you know, there's there's a lot of conjecture around that. I think, um, you know, the fact that we are able to translate between different worlds is reflected in our client set. We've got banks, corporates, fund managers, think tanks, uh, development finance institutions and NGOs uh, amongst our clients. And basically what we try and do is to help decision makers uh, answer the so what question and to make better decision maker, de better decisions in the face of all the volatility, uncertainty, and ambiguity that they're facing in today's very, very volatile 
geopolitical uh, world. I think it's interesting that you used two words there. Uh, one in your introduction, you used the word, uh, you, you, you described an interest in backing the underdog. And then mm. afterwards, you mentioned the coverage being 54 countries, every single country in Africa, which is differentiated to other countries because you guys are willing to look at uh, countries which may be overlooked, right? And mm. I think you use the word like, you know, perhaps seen as too exotic. And it strikes me that, that it is building that kind of uh, resource and time with these places that others aren't looking at that kind of enables one to kind of develop an edge and a more sophisticated view to others. So I definitely appreciate that. In terms of given the kind of breadth of coverage you have, when it comes to the macro view of the African mm. continent as a whole and the underlying themes that you think are currently shaping it right now slash moving, you know, we're in the early tranche of the 2020s, moving towards the rest of the 2020s. What do you think some of these big themes are that are kind of like, you know, occupying your mind as you're kind of talking to clients and kind of going on assignments for them mm -hmm. right now? So I think at the moment, obviously, the, the impact of the Russia-Ukraine war on Africa is, is top of mind for us. And I think, you know, you mentioned the, the 2020s. Uh, if we dial back the clock a little bit, you know, 2020 started off um, not on a great footing. It was dominated by the three Cs, COVID, capital flight and commodity prices crashing. Uh, it was a horrible year for the African continent. First uh, recession in 25 years, according to the IMF. It was a perfect storm of a collapse in the real economy and in the financial economy across developed and developing markets. So um, really uh, a brutal setback in 2020. Uh, 2021 uh, was the year of the three Ds, debt, disease and dysfunction. Um, and then we thought last year would be the year of recovery. The pandemic was was ending. Financial conditions were favorable. Commodity prices were ticking up. And then obviously the invasion happened. So it became, instead of the year of recovery, it became the year of Russia recession and uh, risk off. And so Africa was again smacked by a lot of external and internal shocks, of course, uh, Africa is not a country, but a lot of the themes and the transmission mechanisms affected affected all countries across the continent. I think you know what stands out is that in addition to to this risk of the war, what you had last year was um, a strong dollar um, because of the the strength of the U.S. economy um, and you know the the overheating uh, risks over there, um, and I think that translated into higher debt servicing costs uh, and weaker currencies for African countries. You had Europe grappling with a severe energy crisis um, and you know that translated into food and fuel um, inflation, which affected many African countries. And then China um, was fighting a host of domestic issues. Uh, and then it had um, you know the issues associated with the zero COVID policy. So that all created this environment of contagion, a risk off environment. And that was significant for the African continent um in terms of financial markets in terms of trade and in terms of investment um so you know now in 2023 we don't really know how this war is going to end we've still got lingering fears of a global recession there's tension in policy making between fiscal and, and monetary policy and then of course you've got the lingering geopolitical uh friction between the global north and the global south um which is which is also something we should probably touch on what does more robust policy action from governments look like in lieu of the three R's that you mentioned? So you mentioned recession, risk of Russia getting in the way of what could have been a recovery instead. Uh, I'm just curious, like, how, how things varied across the continent in terms of the responses that governments have kind of made or that, you know, acts have made to like be more robust in, in lieu of that? So this is the thing, you know, the policy war chests are pretty thin because, you know, they're battling the consequences of, of what we've we've had in 2020, 2021 and now 2022. So there's very limited room on the fiscal policy front uh, and monetary policy in an African context is 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 not as effective as in developed markets, largely because um, of how dependent we are on the external environment. So. You know, I think the, the thing that springs to mind over here is is the, the fiscal issues and the debt issues where African sovereigns were were locked out of capital markets uh, last year. They couldn't issue new debt because it was just simply too expensive uh, because of the reasons that I mentioned in terms of the currency blowouts um, and the cost of funding. 
And this is obviously creating a lot of consternation. So um, in terms of, of what they can do, I think the, there's no secret as to what African economies need to do with, you know, a lot of them are single commodity dependent. So diversification is, is really important. And then developing local solutions, um, you know, like local capital markets, so you can tap into domestic pools of funding is going to be quite important so that we avoid these these boom bust scenarios and this dependence on what happens in in the rest of the world so the the long and the short answer is that you know ultimately it's still very much a commodity story and the policy mechanisms um across the continent are are quite thin so i'm going to flag two things that i think are particularly interesting here for listeners or at least for myself that i'd like to point out to listeners so the first thing is you spoke about the kind of thin war chest of tools that are available for navigating this from a policy perspective. And I wonder what more heterodox approaches may look like to experimenting on the policy front, given that right now the kind of consensus tools are kind of thin. I don't know what that question implies. I don't know what answers may exist there, but I think it's interesting to kind of dig into. If someone listening finds that interesting, I'd love to uh, discuss that with them. The second thing you mentioned was mobilizing domestic capital markets. One of my favorite books more recently is by Charlie Robertson. And one of the kind of key arguments that he makes is if you reduce fertility, one of the reasons why you can unlock growth is because there's more excess savings that allow you to have a lower cost of capital on infrastructure projects that give a perhaps lower private return, but an adequate private return, and more importantly, a higher social return as well that are easier to finance domestically than externally, where there's a lot of kind of capital constraints involved. So uh, I appreciate you sharing that with me. The next question I have is you spoke about kind of like the Russia story and the kind of Russia, you know, Ukraine kind of war as a whole. I'm curious, what are the different, you mentioned there's no kind of end in sight, so to speak. What, what are some of the different perspectives you've kind of seen on uh, that right now? And like, like what, what are some themes, sub themes within that that come to mind? Cool. So uh, let me let me take your previous point first. So I'm actually having lunch with Charlie Robertson after this. So, um, you know, good guy, really smart, and uh, I think you know he's probably someone you want to get on on this podcast. Uh, and uh, I'm sure you'll benefit from those insights. But I think you know the the demographic challenges across the continent are are well known. Is it going to be uh, a dividend or a disaster? And that's the 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 kind of billion dollar or multi-billion dollar question, right? Um, Africa's young population is potentially uh, a major, major asset, um, but not without the right level of of healthcare, of education, of soft infrastructure uh, to allow them to move up the economic value chain and create this virtual virtuous cycle of prosperity and growth. Um, and I think that's where, you know, uh, kind of poor economic leadership inconsistent policies and a lack of kind of investment and opportunity is is constraining this this potential um now turning to the 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 other point you mentioned around uh the fallout from the russia ukraine conflict i think i can speak from from an african perspective which again is not a homogenous perspective um and it's been very interesting to see the way that african states have have reacted um, to the war in in Ukraine. And I think that's evidenced really by their voting patterns uh, at the UN Security Council. Um, so what we've seen effectively are four camps um, of, of African states. Um, you know, you've got those who are extremely sympathetic to, to Russia and who have aligned with Russia on every single vote. Um, those are your Central African Republics, your Mali's, of this world, your your states that lack legitimacy and that are propped up by Russia uh, through the the Wagner Group, and um, they derive their legitimacy from that. So, kind of, there's that camp. Then you've got a second camp which is broadly supportive of Russia, but you know, uh, a little bit more pragmatic. And that camp, you know, your Zimbabwe's, your Ugandas of this world, um, that have uh, the political elites. Um, have a relationship. There's a history of support during during the Cold War. Uh, they've drawn on that kind of those Soviet links. Um, they support these regimes, or well, Russia supports these regimes with disinformation and arms primarily. Um, so there's that camp. Then you've got the non-aligned camp, um, which is kind of you know countries like South Africa, like Senegal, 
um, where they are saying that for the best outcome or best chance of peace in this war, they need to maintain a level of neutrality. And then you've got the continent's uh, biggest democratizers who've, who've kind of firmly aligned with Ukraine and have adopted an anti-Russian stance. And I think this is this is in- interesting for a variety of reasons. Um, I think, you know, on the in, on the one hand, there's this this kind of Cold War nostalgia and ideological symmetry with the Soviet Union and that era, and a lot of the the old guard of leaders in Africa are sympathetic to that. There are some countries that are like, this is just not our problem. We don't want to um, annoy anyone and make enemies, and so neutrality is the best part path. Um, even though this is affecting us, you know, it's not our war to fight. There's a group of, of countries that are like, you know, we've always been at the back of the queue as Africans, and now the West wants us to kind of take a moral positions, but they were they were happy to ignore us when it came to vaccines. We were at the back of the queue. This is not our fight to fight. Um, and, you know, the, the, the various perspectives around this, which I think is quite telling, there's no common African perspective because different countries are affected in, in different ways. So I think that's that's interesting. I think the broader conversation over here is around the disconnect between the global north and the global south and morality, right? And the global south um, is is growing very frustrated with, you know, the traditional rules-based liberal order um, that has persisted for, for decades. And they're looking f- at creating alternative power structures. This is where things like the BRICS, the New Development Bank, uh, reform of the UN uh, Security Council uh, are all becoming more and more prominent. You're starting to see countries like India and Turkey becoming more assertive. Uh, and I think this is creating an opportunity for for Africa uh, to assert its agency because the the geopolitical um, world is, is shifting quite quite dramatically, and there's a new game of geopolitical chess happening, uh, and Africa now has agency because unlike what was the case during the Cold War, where Africa was exploited by either the U.S. or the Soviet Union. Um, and gained very little, now there's an opportunity to say, well, we can play this economic diplomacy game well, we can see what's in our best strategic interest, um, and we can be kingmaker rather than piggy in the middle, because we've got the demographics, we've got the resources, and we're going to be a big player in the global economy in the next few decades. Uh, By the year 2050, Africa, um, one in four people in the world are going to be from Africa. So quite simply too big to ignore. And I think there's an opportunity here with, with smart policymaking and economic diplomacy to, to capitalize on these, these shifts that are happening geostrategically, geoeconomically, and geopolitically in the world. I guess the elephant in the room here that we haven't touched upon is China. So you mentioned Russia and Wagner groups kind of increasing influence uh, around the CAR kind of area. Uh, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on China-Africa relations and how Africa perhaps can kind of, has, has, has may potentially do a better job or some of the nations within may do a better job of leveraging these competing forces that are trying to be kind of capital providers, but also trying to like you know, fight for influence. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I think this is, this is, the timing is interesting and relations are delicately poised at the moment. So we know that, um, in the past, China has been a big player, a big investor, and a big big trading partner for for African uh, states. And you know they are quite enamored by the Chinese model um, of basically not interfering politically. But I think in 2020 we saw that there were a few issues that that sprang up, which which posed a few questions around around the relationship. So obviously there was some lingering resentment around COVID and. You know the 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 view that it origi- originated in in China, uh, and that the the chaos that it, it caused in the world. Then you know there were xenophobic attacks on African students um, in China in 2020. The allegations of debt trap diplomacy, where you know uh, a lot of commentators and and uh, policy makers have argued that uh, China is is adopting these predatory lending practices, knowing full well that they're ensnaring um, unwitting African policymakers into this kind of broader strategic play. Uh, there's a lot of conjecture around that. And then, you know, post-COVID, China has kind of focused more on its domestic priorities and become more insular and closed the taps on, on a lot of its lending. 
So, you know, that's, I think, um, created a pause in the relationship or or the time for reflection. And I think now there are a few interesting dynamics to consider. So, you know, we, we all know about US-China competition, the contrasting styles and models. And I think given the fact that the US is really ramping up its efforts across the continent with Anthony Blinken, with Janet Yellen, with Jill Biden, uh, Kamala Harris, you know, all in the past couple of months, uh, aggressively courting African states. I think China has realized that to maintain its advantages, it's got to kind of come come up with a charm offensive to show that it's a partner, not a predator. Um, you know, the big flagship initiative in the past was the Belt and Road Initiative. It's now 10 years old. And between 2000 and 2020, um, Chinese state-backed lenders provided loans worth $160 billion to African countries. And that reached a peak in 2016, but it's kind of slowed quite dramatically since then. And I think the model has changed quite a bit to be more private sector oriented. Um, and again, that's for the reasons we've mentioned of China kind of trying to sort out its own domestic issues. Um, I think the way it's going to engage with African states is also going to be interesting. You know, it's it's pledged to waive um, or to offer interest-free loans to 17 African countries, and it's going to participate in the, the G20's debt service suspension initiative and common framework. Um, so, you know, I think there's there's a shift in the relationship, and China's recognizing that it can't be business as usual, that African states are demanding more, and that re uh, requires a shift in the relationship. I think that's from an economic perspective. If we also look at the institutional and soft power levers, um, it seems that China's uh, or Africa's political importance to, to China is, is, is increasing. So, you know, they're looking for more support uh, for their worldview. And that's evidence in the fact that the BRICS are trying to expand, um, you know, on the financial side, the New Development Bank and the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank are, are two, two bodies that, that China's using to to further its expansionist agenda, and then you know, uh, looking to set up military bases across the continent as well, and to to kind of court African states into falling in line with its security worldview as well. Um, so I think the China Africa relationship is at a, a very interesting moment, and it's going to be it's going to be um, intriguing to see how this evolves. Awesome. Before moving on to the next question, uh, one statistic you mentioned was $160 billion of uh, loans and various forms of kind of financing that have come from the Belt and Road Initiative. I want to kind of contextualize that a bit with something you said before, which was the idea of mobilizing domestic financing. Uh, one of the things uh, I heard recently from Mohammed Ibrahim, if I'm not mistaken, who mm. is the... Uh, previous founder of Celtel, which is one of the kind of iconic telecoms companies on the African continent, he cited that uh, the total amount of kind of foreign aid that goes to Africa, just like kind of like, you know, concessionary kind of grants, et cetera, on an annual basis is around $50 billion. And then he went on to contextualize that the total amount of capital flight um, from domestically created industry that goes elsewhere seeking safe havens where, you know, property rights are kind of like more secure, perhaps, or you're just mm -hmm. investing in the S&P 500 through other vehicles, et cetera, is $100 billion. And I just want to kind of contextualize that with the 160 that you mentioned, which is uh, how much kind of latent potential there may be in the domestic financing ecosystems that are so clearly not being tapped because of these issues. One effort I find very interesting here is there's a startup called Dabba Finance, which is essentially aiming to be like a Robin Hood for uh, African capital markets, where it brings in kind of retail investors more thoroughly. Uh, their aim is to eventually become like an operating system for various forms of financing there. I think there's lots of interesting plays that are yet to be done on that front that tap into that 100 billion and make it more attractive for that to stay within the continent, such that it can kind of like be re re reinvested uh, in core infrastructure, etc. So with that aside, one thing I wanted to go back on and ask you about is what is your kind of... Uh, theory or kind of what is the story of Wagner Group in Russia? I've been seeing many posts about this, many articles. I'm curious as to like how you perceive the actions that they're kind of taking and um, what the kind of story there is more generally. Um, I'm going to 
ask you to wait a couple of weeks on that question because I've got a, a paper coming out um, for the, the Carnegie Institute, uh, which delves deep into this. So I'll, I'll share that with you when it's out in a couple of weeks. Um, but basically, you know, in a nutshell, there is a governance vacuum in many of these states. Russia has been very opportunistic in climbing in there, offering uh, support and security to elites uh, because there are weak institutional mechanisms um, and the economic conditions aren't great. Uh, this kind of works in these spaces. And once uh, the the Russian um, kind of paramilitary uh, via Wagner get in, then they're able to kind of spread their reach into other economic avenues. Um, so they, they kind of target these very weak and vulnerable states where there, there are governance vacuums because unlike the era of the Soviet Union, uh, they didn't where they don't have that the same financial muscle um, to to make inroads across the continent. They need to to kind of be smart about how they do that. But like I said, I don't want to reveal too much because I do have a long paper on this coming out uh, in the next couple of weeks. Awesome. I will include that paper in the show notes so folks who are listening to this in a couple of weeks will get a chance to read it. I'm sure it'll be very exciting. Uh, second country I wanted to ask about as it relates to the African continent is we have just spoken about various superpowers. We've spoken about kind of like the Western axis via the US. We've spoken about China and we've spoken about Russia and kind of Wagner group. I'm curious, one of the things that uh, came up, I was in Nasutini last month, was um, they were talking about kind of like Indian mining companies coming in. And I'm curious, are there any, uh, given that kind of, you know, India's kind of recently surpassed China in growth rates, not in, in, in absolute growth, uh, but it seems to be a story where their cycle is just kicking off. I'm curious, are there any uh, relationships being kind of cultivated there? I'm, I'm totally a beginner here. So I'm just curious if there's anything you can kind of share on yeah, that. Yeah. So I think India-Africa relations, you know, they, there's a lot of potential over there, but, you know, there's not been um, a summit since 2015. Um, and, you know, the, that relationship, unlike the Chinese one, which is largely state to state or historically has been, this is largely a private sector led relationship. So, you know, there are a few comparative advantages that India has over here. Um, so obviously it can tap into its diaspora network, particularly in East Africa. Um, the fact that India is a, is a country that's large, it's diverse, it's got federated, um, states and, you know, it's not culturally homogenous. Um, in many ways, it, it the, the African continent represents what India was um, before its great liberaliz liberalization drive in the 90s. And Indian businesses and the Indian private sector is used to catering for, for diverse populations like this. I think the other advantage is that, you know, the type of Indian investment is seen to be better quality growth because it, it caters for communities and it's more bottom up, unlike the kind of top down Chinese model. Uh, and that's one of the criticisms that that's been there in the past. So uh, definitely a lot of potential. I think, you know, uh, the kind of India's desire also for a more equitable and fair global order um, and its economic size means that, you know, um, in many ways, uh, Africa looks to India to, to be that voice. Um, India um, also through through the pandemic um, offered a lot of support um, to African states through vaccines. Uh, India as the pharmacy of the world, uh, etc. had a big comparative advantage over there. So India can do a lot, I think, to win hearts and minds um, across the African continent, increase its soft power um, and increase its economic influence. And like I said, I think this there's enough opportunity for for all big powers to to play a role over here. So uh, definitely a lot of untapped potential um, between India and and African states. Interesting. I think one of the ways to frame this is it is to the benefit of African countries if they figure out to how to create the right framework for playing these other powers off of each other, right? Exactly. To get the types of projects they want from them, get the types of concessions, expertise. Um, or open up these other markets on kind of preferential terms uh, in, in lieu of that. And I wonder what type of advisory roles perhaps could be birthed that are specifically predicated on that type of a power game. So the next question I have for you is, we've been talking about continental trends as a whole, right? Mm -hmm. um, now I'm curious, as you kind of dive within, what are some of the countries that are exciting you 
the most right now on a um, you know risk reward ratio perspective, um, particularly kind of like the ones that are kind of pushing on growth or you think are kind yeah. of getting things right and that are kind of like superseding. And then after that, I'll ask you about which ones are concerning you. Okay. Uh, I mean, maybe before we we kind of delve into that, I think there's it's important to contextualize the reason why kind of these thematic trends are important. Because as a collection of small and fragmented states, Africa does not have the muscle to compete or to have its voice heard in global fora. So, you know, it's when the continent bands together as a collective that the population size, the resource potential, the the demographics all become relevant. uh, And when um, the continent speaks with a collective voice. And I think that's one of the the, um, primary drivers of the Continental Free Trade Agreement, which is aimed to foster integration um, and industrialization across the continent. So um, I think, like I said, as as the external environment and attitudes by global powers in the past have indicated, plus um, the domestic challenges of localization, digitization, um, and and industrialization have indicated Africa has to bet on itself and it has to come up with African solutions to African problems. So I think that's why I, I think a thematic and integrated approach is very important. Now, in terms of the countries that um, I think are, are moving in the right direction, um, I think there are a few that stand out. Um, I think in recent times with leadership changes, Tanzania and Zambia um, have really emerged as the darlings of the investment world. Um, you know, and again, not not difficult to do. Uh, consistent, stable policy making, uh, being investor friendly, communicating transparently, um, and prioritizing reform. Um, you know, Zambia under Hakainde Hichilema, who's a technocrat, have effectively um, they've they've kind of done all the right things. They've they've kind of engaged with the IMF. To, to kind of create that policy confidence. They're in the process of clearing their debt arrears. They, um, he's made very technocratic appointments um, in, in key ministries. He's, he's repaired the, the relationship with the mining sector, which is, which is a, a key driver of economic growth. So directionally, people are enthused about, about the way Zambia is going. Um, I think Tanzania... Uh, again, if you look at what uh, Samia Hassan-Tulu has done, you know, she took over from John Magafuli, who was a COVID denialist, who displayed very autocratic tendencies, who had a very or had created a very hostile um, business environment and the relationship with, with the business community and the private sector was poor. Um, so since taking over, uh, Samia Hassan-Tulu has, has kind of... Um, has created political reform. She's um, adopted a much more scientific approach to, to COVID management. Uh, she's consolidating um, both politically and economically and um, uh, is much more receptive to, to foreign investment. So I think, you know, these are two countries that are moving in the right direction. I think Morocco is, is exciting as well. You know, ever since they rejoined the African Union and they've decided to kind of pivot towards Africa rather than, than Europe. I think they, um, they, they're starting to, to reap the, the results of that, particularly through the private sector, which has been investing outwardly across the continent quite aggressively. And they've got the, the kind of tacit support of the king who's, who's driving this. And then I'm still long-term uh, quite, quite bullish on Kenya. I think um, Kenya is at a very strategic uh, location. It's been courted by all global powers. I think uh, the tech scene there is very exciting. They've got skilled people. Um, still early days under the new administration, but I think Kenya um, has real potential to drive the the East African region and to be to to, to kind of emerge as a, a leading light over there. And then you know, there's a country now that's quite simply too big to ignore. That's you know, making the right the right movements, Ethiopia, with its privatization kind of efforts and the the, the peace dividend that they're reaping, um, also being courted quite aggressively geopolitically. So um, I think you know, it's a complex and complicated country. We thought this in 2018, you know, with the new prime minister Abiy Ahmed, and things obviously changed quite dramatically. Um, but I think Ethiopia um, is interesting to me as well. Fantastic. One thing I'll flag there 
is when you mentioned Tanzania, one of uh, my favorite figures from Tanzania is this gentleman called Mohamed Dewji, who runs a conglomerate in the country. And uh, one of the kind of sub-businesses of the conglomerate was planning on being spun off around COVID time for about $3 billion on the London Stock Exchange. Again, one of these very, the reason why I find his businesses very interesting is because they're not just kind of selling domestically and they're not rent extracting, rather they kind of mobilize resources to try and move Tanzania towards being, you know, top tier in production in a certain genre of thing. Right now, they are currently incubating a business that's oriented around um, uh, essentially import substitution for Coca-Cola. The idea being they're trying to create their own kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. Pan-African brand and to do own the entire supply chain for that when it comes to kind of soft drinks. And there's a massive kind of marketing push on that. But one of the statistics he shares here, which I think is particularly interesting, is he says in February 2023, that was last month, they saw a 128% increase in registered projects at a value of 340 um million of I'm guessing USD um, or perhaps their their currency I'm not too sure Um, and then it says expected job creation of 7,370 which is quite striking when you compare it to as you mentioned a lot of the risk off capital flight um, sovereign debt struggles that seem to be plaguing other countries on the continent right now yeah uh, I mean and I think that's that echoes the the earlier point that I was making, right? You know, the solutions to to Africa's kind of growth, industrialization, prosperity, all lie within Africa. Uh, the model that we've seen in the past of producing the raw material and importing the refined product um, can't work anymore. And given the demographic challenges, what we need to do is build industries, value chains, um, and prioritize that that urgently. To do that, obviously you've got certain challenges, right? So you need to kind of prioritize infrastructure. You need to prioritize energy, um, you know, and when we talk about infrastructure, we talk about hard infrastructure, roads, railways, bridges, ports, soft infrastructure, healthcare and education, but then also digital infrastructure. Um, So I think, you know, uh, that's what we need to see. Far more African businesses, um, you know, creating jobs, creating value, and you know, if the continental free trade agreement works, then you've got you've got bigger marketplaces, um, and you can grow your domestic markets, have greater reach. Um, uh, so you know, from a domestic business and investor standpoint, it's an attractive regional market. But then also from an interna- international um, investment standpoint, uh, it's just simply too big to ignore because the continental free trade agreement will create a market bigger than the size of India and. I don't care what investor you are. That's that's just simply too big to ignore. Fantastic. One of the references I found most interesting here is on like the intangible capital that allows the content to accelerate. It's like venture creation as a whole. And there's this organization called the African Management Institute, which a gentleman introduced me to a couple of weeks ago. He described some of the work that they did during COVID time when it came to essentially aggregating entrepreneurs and helping them with emergency cash flow management and just essentially figuring out what the best practices would be given the kind of constraints that the content was facing at the time and then kind of diffuse those across kind of Zoom, et cetera. And I think like tiny things like that help, you know, uh, incubate the human capital that then shapes uh, the next thing. So with that in mind, the next question I have is oriented in the inverse direction. And it's not about the the positive kind of possibilities, but it's actually about the risks and the places that are kind of struggling right now. What are some countries that you think are going through particularly turbulent times um, or that are at risk of going through increasingly turbulent times? Uh, and I will contextualize this by saying very often that may be seen as a red flag and results in capital flight. And also say in other contexts, that can be if you really kind of aim to build a worldview there, a green flag insofar as things are kind of depressed. But if you believe it, you know, that things can improve, uh, now's the time to kind of jump in. But in any case, what, what are some of these places that are kind of struggling right now? Yeah, look, I mean, I think, you know, these these things are never black and white. And, you know, there'll always be some pockets of, of good uh, to go with the, the negativity. I mean, my country is a standout example, right? So South Africa, uh, really struggling at the moment grim economic growth rates the social contract is fraying quite dramatically um it looks like next year during the elections we're going to have a coalition government for the first time 
since the advent of democracy. So that's creating a whole bunch of new political dynamics. We don't have enough power to to grow the economy at the moment. Um, look, that is on track for, for, for change. And I think we've seen some positive institutional changes since President Ramaphosa came into power. You know, uh, SOEs are getting tough love. Um, a lot of key institutions have been recapacitated. Um, but the, the issue is that it's too slow. And while we are seeing institutional and political reform, and he is a Democrat, and these will pay long-term dividends, um, and the reality is he inherited a, a real mess, I think the, the reality is also that South Africa's economic condition is, is, um, is not improving at the moment. Um, it's leading to socioeconomic stress. Um, it's leading to to a lot of protest action, and you know, without decisive leadership, um, it's very difficult to see how we get out of this this hole. Um, you know, and a lot of that is because of the the internal friction between the ruling party dynamics and what's what how how those are anchored and and what what the country needs. Um, so, you know, South Africa, again, erratic policy in the past, um, you know, no power. These are all deterrents for for international investors um, who want certainty and who want consistency. And South Africa's political and economic environment is in a bit of flux at the moment. So, um, and I think, you know, the African continent needs a strong, stable, growing growing South Africa um, to to really kind of, uh, for it to move in the right direction. Um, I think Nigeria also in the past has kind of, the past two Buhari terms, I think, have been underwhelming at best. Uh, there's a bit of optimism now uh, that a new administration will change direction, but, you know, we'll have to see. These things are often complex and messy, particularly these transitions. But, you know, we want to see reform uh, in Nigeria. Uh, we want to see a more kind of investor-friendly um, environment. We want to see Nigeria, con- a country of 200 million people, uh, really asserting itself on a, on a global stage. You know, um, So I think the policy environment in, in both South Africa and, and Nigeria has, has left a lot to be desired. Um, and ultimately, it comes down to the type of leadership that we've, we've had. So I think you know, those two, two economies um, really concern me. I'm curious, how bad do things have to get before they get better? And I know there's no definitive frame on this, but I'm curious as to like what your, um, if you were to kind of come up with a framework for thinking about that, what are some ways to at least hypothetically think about, you know, the South Africa situation, for example, like, like what, what does it mean for them to kind of uh, start building up again? Like what are some indicators you'd be looking at to say, okay, this is a sign that things are progressing and there's some sort of a growth curve kind of going on here um, in terms of like the underlying kind of like, you know, uh, uh, policies slash signals from the government slash signals from kind of civil society as a whole. So look, what you look for is political will for reform, right? So, uh, and unfortunately, because of how complex the problems are in South Africa, there's a lot of horse trading um, required. Um, so, you know, that's that's the first thing. But typically, if countries don't reform, financial crises will reform them. So often the financial market will will say, we don't trust, We there's a trust deficit in in we don't trust your policy making. We saw that in the UK last year with Liz Trust and Kwasi Kateng, uh, and and bond markets and financial markets are brutal. They they're not they're not uh, they don't suffer fools, right? So, um, and then typically what happens if it becomes unsustainable? You countries typically go to the IMF, um, and that puts them on a reform trajectory, which sees a shift in policy direction. Now, South Africa is very, very different in that sense. It's got strong, deep, liquid capital markets. It's got strong institutions as well. So I don't see the IMF trajectory being being something uh, that will 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 emerge anytime soon. But I think you know, change of, in government also, um, you know, uh, votes matter. So you know, we'll see what happens in the, in the next election. Um, but you know, I think the South African example is quite similar to. To what happened in India, um, you know, Liberation Party, the Congress Party, 
Uh, it took them 30 years to, to lose their majority. And then India entered into an era of coalition politics. And that's often messy. Um, but, you know, with the right democratic maturity, they can work. Um, so we're entering a really interesting and exciting phase um, in South Africa. But um, there's lots of uncertainty. Awesome. And in lieu of that, uh, what are some, you know, if someone's coming at this from like an investment standpoint and looking for kind of areas or themes to dig into as it relates to, you know, building opportunity in the longer term, what, what, what kind of comes from that kind of worldview that you've presented right now of certain nations going through certain cycles and other ones going through other cycles? So, I mean, I think I'll, I'll kind of bring it back to this kind of the broad themes of, of what the continent requires, right? So the continent is not industrialized, it's not integrated, and we've got great human capital potential and this huge capacity to innovate. So with that in mind, I think there, there are five kind of key areas that I'd advise, advise investors to, to look at. So, uh, and I call it the technicolor economy. So you've got a lot of untapped potential in the blue economy, the oceans economy and the knowledge economy, um, a lot of coastal states across the continent, uh, tourism, uh, maritime diplomacy, um, recycling, all of this kind of stuff can be can be leveraged quite significantly. Then there's a green economy dealing with kind of energy and, and food security. I think Africa has the potential to be the breadbasket of the world. And here we can infuse technological innovation, um, you know, with with the, the resources that we that we have in order to scale this. Um, so I think those two. Then you've got the um, flat white economy, which refers to the tech- technological economy. And we've seen some of the, the best global innovations uh, in the world have emanated from, from African countries. And that's largely because of the fact that um, innovation is bred by necessity, you know, solving real world challenges to make lives easier. Um, and I think if you look at uh, the African tech scene and how much money is going into there, I think that's that's quite telling that this is a an area that's 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 got a lot of long-term potential. Um, I think the purple economy, which is art, fashion, um, culture, you know, things like Afrobeats, African fashion, um, all of this stuff is is underdeveloped. And I think there's an industry around this. And you can reference examples of Bollywood, of K-pop as money spinners for certain countries um, in Asia. And I think developing the infrastructure around this creative arts economy um, is something that, that is quite exciting. Um, and then you've got the, the gray economy, which is the parallel economy and bring the informal sector um, into the tax net, um, you know, using things like fintech, um, I think could be quite interesting as well. So a lot of opportunity across the continent for, for really, really exciting industries to, to grow. Um, and then, of course, you know, I, I, I haven't even mentioned the, one of the potential spinoffs out of the, the Russia-Ukraine war is that because Europe is trying to, to kind of go green, um, this is creating a potential energy revolution in Africa, um, there are abundant natural gas resources. We've got a lot of countries that um, have 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 made these discoveries, um, and I think with sanctions on Russia, there's there's an opportunity here to come up with um, with meeting Europe's energy needs and to developing solutions and public-private partnerships that that work for Africa and that also work for the world. Fantastic. It's uh, it's great that you bring up the natural gas point, actually, because the next guest on the show is a gentleman called NJ Ayuk, who's the executive chairman at Africa Energy Chamber. And his book recently um, that he's kind of published is called, uh, to be candid with you, kind of, oh, it's called A Just Transition. And it talks about uh, various types of policy instruments and um, advocacy kind of tools required to kind of unlock that natural gas sector that can provide energy to African continents, which is a place of you know 600 million people plus who don't have access to uh, consistent electricity, uh, but also to become a kind of net exporter of that in the same way that the US has recently become a net exporter of oil. Um, I would love to leave the uh, podcast there because I think it's good to kind of leave it on 
opportunities and optimism. That being said, given that your work is oriented around risk, I'm curious on a practical basis, uh, what is what is some advice you'd have to folks in terms of navigating, understanding, managing risks on the continents, given that you've seen so much and done so much um, as it particularly relates to risk management um, there? Hopefully that'll be valuable to, to listeners and then uh, we can kind of cap off. Cool. So I think you know, the three things I think are really important in the work that I do is to be a good risk analyst, you need to be able to anticipate turning points. Um, you need to be able to to kind of see patterns and connect the dots and use your intuition, your experience um, to give people insight that they don't get via Google. Uh, everybody's got access to the internet. Now, uh, you know, there are various forms of AI also, which you know, if you, which make data easily available. So if you don't add the insight um, and, and anticipate and take a forward looking view, you're going to, you're not going to be relevant. I think the other thing is curiosity and that's asking the right questions. It's not necessarily having all the right answers, but, but, you know, knowing what the, the right questions are to ask and then communicating effectively. So, you know, in, in the work that I do, people often think that the, that we, we try and predict the future and that when we get it wrong, we're, we're failures. But that's that's not actually what we do. We, we try to provide frameworks for better decision making. That needs to be rooted in facts. It needs to be clearly communicated. And we need to take a position because, you know, nobody likes Captain Obvious. You know, if you, if you have done the work and if you have a high conviction view, uh, and it's rooted in fact that that's the value that you're you're adding. And like I said, you have to be able to connect the dots. But of course, you don't always get this right. Um, so you need to be humble about it. You need to be open to to challenging yourself and surrounding yourself with the people that do challenge you, uh, so that you're not in an echo chamber. So yeah, I think it's it's um, it's really about the curiosity and the anticipation and and the communication. Um, everybody's got different styles, but that's kind of what works for me and and most of my team as well. Awesome. I uh, will share a related anecdote on that because it strikes me that you're, you're pointing to the importance of almost you know any participant building their own kind of inner risk analyst beyond just relying externally, right? And uh, a, a fun story that I like from this comes from Bill Ackman, where he talks about going on a road trip with his father, and um, he had the ran into some sort of object, which meant that they had to repair one of the tires for the car. And in doing so, they had to elevate the car. And he went underneath to fix that. He'd asked his dad, and he was kind of trepidatious before doing so. He was like, should I go under the car? Should I not? It looks kind of risky. And he was like, oh, dad, should I go under the car? And he's like, yes, son, go for it. Um, like, it, it'll, it'll be fine. And as he went under the car, the car kind of slips in a certain direction. And luckily, he's able to avoid it. But the lesson that he kind of learned from there was even if it's someone you trust, even if it's someone you know very well, just relying on their judgments is not enough because at the end of the day, you're on the line. And I think like, you know, developing, as you mentioned, that combination of forward-looking anticipation, that kind of disciplined cognition, and then finally that kind of humility to uh, adjust appropriately is crucial. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I appreciate the macro and micro insights you've shared here as well. Uh, are there any final comments you have for listeners before we cap off? Uh, Africa's the future. Too big to ignore. Love to hear it, man. Love to hear it. Okay, cool. Thank you so much for your time, Ronak. Um, wishing you the best. Cool. Thanks.